Chapter Twenty Four of the Seats of the Mighty by Gilbert Parker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twenty Four. That night at nine o'clock, the terror of France catching the flow of the tide, with one sail set and a gentle wind, left the fleet and came slowly up the river under the batteries of the town in the gloom we passed lazily on with the flow of the tide unquestioned soon leaving the citadel behind and ere long came softly to that point called anse de foulon above which sillery stood the shore could not be seen distinctly but i knew by a perfect instinct the cleft in the hillside where was the path leading up the mountain i bade clark come up the river again two nights hence to watch for my signal which was there agreed upon if i did not come then with general wolfe's consent he must show the general this path up the mountain he swore that all should be as i wished and indeed you would have thought that he and his terror of france were to level quebec to the water's edge i stole softly to the shore in a boat which i drew up among the bushes hiding it as well as i could in the dark and then feeling for my pistols and my knife i crept upwards coming presently to the passage in the mountain i toiled on to the summit without a sound of alarm from above pushing forward a light flashed from the windmill and a man and then two men appeared in the door one of them was captain lancy whom i had very good reason to remember the last time i saw him was that famous morning when he would have had me shot five minutes before the appointed hour rather than endure the cold and be kept from his breakfast i itched to call him to account then and there but that would have been foolish play i was outside of the belt of light falling from the door and stealing round i came near to the windmill on the town side i was not surprised to see such poor watch kept above the town up to this time the god was of a perfunctory sort for the great cliffs were thought impregnable and even if surmounted there was still the walled town to take surrounded by the st lawrence the st charles and these massive bulwarks presently lancy stepped out into the light and said with a hoarse laugh blood of peter it was a sight to-day she has a constant fancy for the english filibuster Robert, my husband she bleated like a pretty lamb and doltaire grinned at her but doltaire will have her yet he has her pinched like a mouse in a weasel's teeth my faith mademoiselle has no sweet road to travel since her mother died was the careless reply i almost cried out here was a blow which staggered me her mother dead presently the scoffer continued the Duvanes would remain in the city, and on that very night, as they sit at dinner, a shell disturbs them, a splinter strikes Madame, and two days after she is carried to her grave. They linked arms and walked on. It was a dangerous business I was set on, for I was sure that I would be hung without shrift if captured. As it proved afterwards, I had been proclaimed and it was enjoined on all frenchmen and true catholics to kill me if the chance showed only two things could i depend on vubo and my disguise which was very good 
from the terror of france i had got a peasant's dress and by rubbing my hands and face with the stain of butternut cutting again my new-grown beard and wearing a wig i was well guarded against discovery how to get into the city was the question by the st charles river and the palace gate and by the st louis gate not far from the citadel were the only ways and both were difficult i had however two or three plans and these i chewed as i went across metra abraham's fields and came to the main road from sillery to the town soon i heard the noise of clattering hoofs and jointly with this i saw a figure rise up not far ahead of me as if waiting for the coming horseman i drew back the horseman passed me and as he came on slowly i saw the figure spring suddenly from the roadside and make a stroke at the horseman in a moment they were a rolling mass upon the ground while the horse trotted down the road a little and stood still i never knew the cause of that encounter robbery or private hate or paid assault but there was scarcely a sound as the two men struggled presently there was groaning and both lay still i hurried to them and found one dead and the other dying and dagger wounds in both for the assault had been at such close quarters that the horseman had had no chance to use a pistol my plans were changed on the instant i drew the military coat boots and cap off the horseman and put them on myself and thrusting my hand into his waistcoat for he looked like a courier i found a packet this i put into my pocket and then making for the horse which stood quiet in the road i mounted it and rode on towards the town striking a light i found that the packet was addressed to the governor a serious thought disturbed me i could not get into the town through the gates without the countersign i rode on anxious and perplexed presently a thought pulled me up the courier was insensible when i left him and he was the only one who could help me in this i greatly reproached myself for leaving him while he was still alive poor devil thought i to myself there is some one whom his death will hurt he must not die alone he was no enemy of mine i went back and getting from the horse stooped to him lifted up his head and found that he was not dead i spoke in his ear he moaned and his eyes opened what is your name said i jean labroc he whispered now i remembered him he was the soldier whom gabo had sent as messenger to vubo the night i was first taken to the citadel shall i carry word for you to any one asked i there was a slight pause then he said tell my babette jacques dubrot owes me ten francs and a leg of mutton tell my babette to give my coat of beaver fur to gabor the soldier tell he sank back but raised himself and continued tell my babette i weep with her ah mon grand homme de calvaire bonsoir he sank back again but i roused him with one question more vital to me i must have the countersign labruc labruc said i sharply he opened his dull glazed eyes qui va là? said i 
and I waited anxiously. Thought seemed to rally in him, and, staring, alas, how helpless and how sad, that look of a man brought back for an instant from the shadows. His lips moved. France, was the whispered reply. Advance and give the countersign, I urged. Yes, sir. he murmured faintly. I drew from my breast the cross that Matilda had given me, and pressed it to his lips. He sighed softly, lifted his hand to it, and then fell back, never to speak again. After covering his face and decently laying the body out, I mounted the horse again. Glancing up, I saw that this bad business had befallen not twenty feet from a high cavalry at the roadside. I was in a painful quandary. Did Lebrouc mean that the countersign was Jesu, or was that word the broken prayer of his soul as it hurried forth? So strange a countersign I had never heard, and, yet it might be used in this Catholic country, this day might be some great feast of the church, possibly that of the naming of Christ, which was the case, as I afterwards knew. I rode on, tossed about in my mind so much hung on this if i could not give the countersign i should have to fight my way back again the road i came but i must try my luck so i went on beating up my heart to confidence and now i came to the st louis gate a tiny fire was burning near and two sentinels stepped forward as i rode boldly on the entrance voilà. was the sharp call france was my reply, in a voice as like the peasants as possible. Advance and give the countersign, came the demand. Another voice called from the darkness of the wall. Come and drink, comrade, of a brother with Bourganville. Jesu, said I to the sentinel, answering his demand for the countersign, and I spurred on my horse idly, though my heart was thumping hard, for there were several sturdy fellows lying beyond the dull handful of fire. Instantly the sentinel's hand came to my bridle rein. Halt! roared he. Surely some good spirit was with me then to prompt me, for, with a careless laugh, as though I had not before finished the countersign, Cleast, <laughs> I added, Jesu Cleast. With an oath the soldier let go the bridle rein, the other opened the gates, and I passed through. I heard the first fellow swearing roundly to the others that he would send yon courier to the fires of hell if he played with him again so. The gates closed behind me, and I was in the town which had seen the worst days and best moments of my life. I rode along at a trot, and once again beyond the citadel was summoned by a sentinel. Safely passed on, I came down towards the Chateau St. Louis. I rode boldly up to the great entrance door, and handed the packet to the sentinel. From whom? he asked. Look in the corner, said I. And what business is it of yours? There is no word in the corner, answered he doggedly. Is it from Monsieur le Général at Cap Rouge? Bah! Did you think it was from an English wolf? I asked. His dull face broke a little. Is Sean Labroque with Bougainville yet? He's done with Bougainville. He's dead, I answered. Dead? Dead, said he, 
a sort of grin playing on his face. I made a shot at a venture. But you're to pay his wife Babette the ten francs and the leg of mutton in twenty-four hours, or his ghost will follow you, swallow that pudding head, and see you pay it, or every man in our company swears to break a score of shingles on your bare back. I'll pay, I'll pay, he said, and he took to trembling. Where shall I find Babette? asked I. I come from Ile Ucudre. I know not this rambling town. A little house hugging the cathedral rear, he explained. Babette sweeps out the vestry and fetches water for the priests. Good, said I. Take that to the governor at once, and send the corporal of the guard to have this horse fed and cared for, and he's to carry back the governor's messenger. I've further business for the general in the town. And tell your captain of the guard to send and pick up two dead men in the highway, just against the first cavalry beyond the town. He did my bidding and I dismounted, and was about to get away, when I saw the Chevalier de la Durante and the Intendant appear at the door. They paused upon the steps. The Chevalier was speaking most earnestly. To a nunnery! A piteous shame! It should not be, Your Excellency! To decline upon Monsieur Doltaire, then? asked Bigu with a sneer. "'Your Excellency believes in no woman,' responded the Chevalier stiffly. "'Ah, yes, in one,' was the cynical reply. "'Is it possible? And she remains a friend of Your Excellency?' came back in irony. "'The very best. She finds me unendurable.' "'Philosophy shirks the solving of that problem, Your Excellency,' was the cold reply. "'No, it is easy. The woman to be trusted is she who never trusts. The paragon, or prodigy, who is she? Even Madame Jamon. She danced for you once, Your Excellency, they tell me.' she was a devil that night she drove us mad so doltaire had not given up the secret of that affair there was silence for a moment and then the chevalier said her father will not let her go to a nunnery no no why should he yield to the church in this bigu shrugged a shoulder not even to hide shame liar ruffian said i through my teeth the chevalier answered for me i would stake my life on her truth and purity you forget the mock marriage dear chevalier it was after the manner of his creed and people it was after a manner we all have used at times "'Speak for yourself, Your Excellency,' was the austere reply. Nevertheless, I could see that the Chevalier was much troubled. "'She forgot race, religion, people, all to spend still hours with a foreign spy in prison,' urged Bigu, with damnable point and suggestion. "'Hush, sir,' said the Chevalier. She is a girl once much beloved and ever admired among us, 
Let not your rancor against the man be spent upon the maid. Nay, more, why should you hate the man so? It is said, Your Excellency, that this Moray did not fire the shot that wounded you, but one who has less reason to love you. Bigu smiled wickedly, but said nothing. The Chevalier laid a hand on Bigu's arm. Will you not oppose the governor and the bishop? Her fate is sad enough. I will not lift a finger. There are weightier matters. Let Doltaire, the idler, the Donamato, the hunter of that fawn, save her from the holy ambush. Tut, tut, Chevalier, let her go. Your nephew is to marry her sister. Let her be swallowed up. A shame behind the veil, the sweet litany of the cloister. The Chevalier's voice set hard as he said in quick reply, My family honor, Francois Bigot, needs no screen. And if you doubt that, I will give you argument at your pleasure. So saying, he turned and went back into the chateau. Thus the honest Chevalier kept his word, given to me when I released him from serving me on the St. Lawrence. Bigou came down the steps, smiling detestably, and passed me with no more than a quick look. I made my way cautiously through the streets towards the cathedral, for I owed a duty to the poor soldier who had died in my arms, through whose death I had been able to enter the town. Disarray and ruin met my sight at every hand. Shot and shell had made wicked havoc. Houses where, as a hostage, I had dined, were battered and broken. Public buildings were shapeless masses, and dogs and thieves prowled among the ruins. Drunken soldiers staggered past me, hags begged for sous or bread at corners, and devoted priests and long-robed recollet monks, cowled and alert, hurried past, silent and worn with labors, watchings, and prayers. A number of officers in white uniforms rode by, going towards the chateau and a company of couriers de bois came up from Mountain Street, singing, Giron Giron, le canon glan, commencez-vous, commencez-vous. Here and there were fires lighted in the streets, though it was not cold, and beside them peasants and soldiers drank and quarreled over food, for starvation was abroad in the land. By one of these fires, in a secluded street, for I had come a roundabout way, were a number of soldiers of Languedoc's regiment. I knew them by their trick of headgear and their stoutness, and with them reckless girls, who, in their abandonment, seemed to me like those revellers in Herculaneum, who danced their way into the Cimmerian darkness. I had no thought of staying there to moralize upon the theme, but, as I looked, a figure came out of the dusk ahead, and moved swiftly towards me. It was Matilda. She seemed bent on some errand, but the revellers at the fire caught her attention, and she suddenly swerved towards them, and came into the dull glow, her great black eyes shining with bewildered brilliancy and vague keenness, her long fingers reaching out with a sort of chafing motion. She did not speak till she was among them. 
I drew into the shade of a broken wall, and watched. She looked all round the circle, and then, without a word, took an iron crucifix which hung upon her breast, and silently lifted it above their heads for a moment. I myself felt a kind of thrill go through me, for her wild beauty was almost tragical. Her madness was not grotesque, but solemn and dramatic. There was something terribly deliberate in her strangeness. It was full of awe to the beholder, more searching and painfully pitiful than melancholy. Coarse hands fell away from wanton waists, ribaldry hesitated, hot faces drew apart, and all at once a girl with a crackling laugh threw a tin cup of liquor into the fire. Even as she did it, a wretched dwarf sprang into the circle without a word, and, snatching the cup out of the flames, jumped back again into the darkness, peering into it with a hollow laugh. As he did so, a soldier raised a heavy stick to throw it at him, but the girl caught him by the arms and said, with a hoarse pathos, "'My God, no, Alphonse! It is my brother!' Here Matilda, still holding out the cross, said in a loud whisper, "'Shh, my children, go not to the palace, for there is Francois Bigot, and he has a devil. But if you have no cottage, I will give you a home. I know the way to it up in the hills. Poor children, see?' I will make you happy. She took a dozen little wooden crosses from her girdle, and, stepping round the circle, gave each person one. No man refused, save a young militiaman, and when, with a sneering laugh, he threw his into the fire, she stooped over him and said, Poor boy, poor boy. She put her fingers on her lips and whispered, Beati Immaculati, Miserere Mei, Deus. Stray phrases gathered from the liturgy, pregnant to her brain, order and truth flashing out of wandering and fantasy. No one of the girls refused, but sat there, some laughing nervously, some silent, for this mad maid had come to be surrounded with a superstitious reverence in the eyes of the common people. It was said she had a home in the hills somewhere, to which she disappeared for days and weeks, and came back hung about the girdle with crosses, and it was also said that her red robe never became frayed, shabby, or disordered. Suddenly she turned and left them. I let her pass, unchecked, and went on towards the cathedral, humming an old French chanson. I did this because now and then I met soldiers and patrols, and my free and careless manner disarmed notice. Once or twice drunken soldiers stopped me and threw their arms about me, saluting me on the cheeks with a la mode, asking themselves to drink with me. Getting free of them, I came on my way, and was glad to reach the cathedral unchallenged. Here and there a broken buttress or splintered wall told where our guns had played upon it, but inside I could hear an organ playing and a miserere being chanted. I went round to its rear, and there I saw the little house described by the sentinel at the chateau. Coming to the door, I knocked, 
and it was opened at once by a warm-faced woman of thirty or so, who instantly brightened on seeing me. Ah, you come from Caprouge, monsieur, she said, looking at my clothes, her own husband's, though she knew it not. I come from Jean, said I, and stepped inside. She shut the door, and then I saw, sitting in a corner, by a lighted table, an old man, bowed and shrunken, white hair and white beard falling all about him, and nothing of his features to be seen save high cheekbones and two hawk-like eyes which peered up at me. So, so, from Jean, he said in a high, piping voice. Jean's a pretty boy. Ay, ay, Jean's like his father, but neither with a foot like mine. A foot for the court, said Frontenac to me. Yes, oh, yes, I knew the great Frontenac. The wife interrupted his gossip. What news from Jean? said she. He hoped to come one day this week. He says, responded I gently, that Jacques de Brote owes you ton francs and a leg of mutton, and that you are to give his great beaver coat to Gabo the soldier. Ay, ay, Gabo the soldier, he that the English spy near sent to heaven, quavered the old man. The bitter truth was slowly dawning upon the wife. She was repeating my words in a whisper, as if to grasp their full meaning. He said also, I continued, Tell Babette I weep with her. She was very still and dazed. Her fingers went to her white lips, and stayed there for a moment. I never saw such a numb misery in any face. And, last of all, he said, Ah, mon grand homme de calvaire, bonsoir. She turned round, and went and sat down beside the old man, looked into his face for a minute silently, and then said, Grandfather, Jean is dead. Our Jean is dead. The old man peered at her for a moment, then broke into a strange laugh, which had in it the reflection of a distant misery, and said, Our little Jean, our little Jean Labrouc. Ha, ha, there was Villon, Marmont, Gabriel, and Gouloir, and all their sons, and they all said the same at the last. Mon grand homme de Calvaire, bonsoir. Then there was little Jean, the pretty little Jean. He could not row a boat, but he could ride a horse, and he had an eye like me. <laughs> I have seen them all say good night. Good morning, my children, I will say one day, and I will give them all the news, and I will tell them all I have done these hundred years. <laughs> the wife put her fingers on his lips, and, turning to me, said with a peculiar sorrow, Will they fetch him to me? I assured her that they would. The old man fixed his eyes on me most strangely, and then, stretching out his finger and leaning forward, he said, with a voice of senile wildness, Ah, ah, the coat of our little Jean. I stood there like any criminal caught in his shameful act. Though I had not forgotten that I wore the dead man's clothes, I could not think that they would be recognized for they seemed like others of the French army, white with violet facings. 
i cannot tell to this day what it was that enabled them to detect the coat but there i stood condemned before them the wife sprang to her feet came to me with a set face and stared stonily at the coat for an instant then with a cry of alarm she made for the door but i stepped quickly before her and bade her wait till she heard what i had to say like lightning it all went through my brain i was ruined if she gave an alarm all quebec would be at my heels and my purposes would be defeated there was but one thing to do tell her the whole truth and trust her for i had at least done fairly by her and by the dead man so i told them how jean Labruc had met his death told them who i was and why i was in quebec how jean died in my arms and taking from my breast the cross that matilda had given me i swore by it that every word which i said was true the wife scarcely stirred while i spoke but with wide dry eyes and hands clasping and unclasping heard me through i told her how i might have left jean to die without a sign or message to them how i had put the cross to his lips as he went forth and how by coming here at all i placed my safety in her hands and now by telling my story my life itself it was a daring and a difficult task when i had finished both sat silent for a moment and then the old man said ay ay jean's father and his uncle marmont were killed a horseback and by the knife ay ay it is our way jean was good company none better mass over on a sunday come we will light candles for jean and comb his hair back sweet and masses shall be said and again the woman interrupted quieting him then she turned to me and i awaited her words with a desperate sort of courage i believe you she said i remember you now my sister was the wife of your keeper at the common jail you shall be safe alas my jean might have died without a word to me all alone in the night merci me foi monsieur then she rocked a little to and fro and the old man looked at her like a curious child at last i must go to him she said my poor jean must be brought home i told her i had already left word concerning the body at headquarters she thanked me again overcome as she was she went and brought me a peasant's hat and coat such trust and kindness touched me trembling she took from me the coat and hat i had worn and she put her hands before her eyes when she saw a little spot of blood upon the flap of a pocket the old man reached out his hands and taking them he held them on his knees whispering to himself you will be safe here the wife said to me the loft above is small but it will hide you if you have no better place i was thankful that i had told her all the truth i should be snug here awaiting the affair in the cathedral on the morrow there was vubo but i knew not of him or whether he was open to aid or shelter me his own safety had been long in peril he might be dead for all i knew i thanked the poor woman warmly and then asked her if the old man might not betray me to strangers she bade me leave all that to her that i should be safe for a while at least soon afterwards i went abroad 
and made my way by a devious route to Vubo's house. As I did so, I could see the lights of our fleet in the basin, and the camp fires of our army on the Leva shore, on Ile Orleans, and even at Montmorency, and the myriad lights in the French encampment at Beauport. How impossible it all looked! To unseat from this high rock the Empire of France! Aye, and how hard it would be to get out of this same city with Alix! Vubo's house stood amid a mass of ruins, itself broken a little, but still sound enough to live in. There was no light. I clambered over debris, made my way to his bedroom window, and tapped on the shutter. There was no response. I tried to open it, but it would not stir, so I thrust beneath it, on the chance of his finding it if he opened the casement in the morning, a little piece of paper with one word upon it, the name of his brother. He knew my handwriting, and he would guess where tomorrow would find me, for I had also hastily drawn upon the paper the entrance of the cathedral. I went back to the little house by the cathedral, and was admitted by the stricken wife. The old man was abed. I climbed up to the small loft, and lay there wide awake for hours. At last came the sounds that I had waited for, and presently I knew by the trump beneath, and by low laments floating up, that a wife was mourning over the dead body of her husband. I lay long and listened to the varying sounds, but at last all became still, and I fell asleep. End of chapter 24